You may be seated. On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus and his disciples gathered in a a candlelit upper room in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We know, because we've read the rest of the story, the rest of the Gospels, that within just a matter of hours, the Son of Man would be betrayed. He would be arrested there in the garden. He would be dragged into the courtyard of the high priest, where he was beaten and blindfolded and blasphemed. That in the early morning hours he was tried by the Sanhedrin and then by Herod and then finally by Pilate. Condemned by the crowd, spat upon and stripped and scourged by the soldiers and then taken outside the city gates and marched up a hill called Golgotha where he was nailed to a cross and crucified. We know that. But the disciples seemed to have had no idea that any of that was coming, though Jesus had told them repeatedly on their long trek from Galilee back to Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. He said, when we arrive in Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of sinners. And they will beat Him, and they will mock Him, and they will scourge Him, and they will put Him to death. But as far as they seemed to know that night, they were simply celebrating the Passover with their master and their friend, doing what faithful Israelites had been doing for nearly 1,500 years. But the Gospels tell us that after supper, Jesus then took the bread and He gave thanks and He broke it. And He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he likewise took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's that phrase that captured my attention as I was studying this text. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It is a sign designed to provoke remembrance. It is portraying and proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. So as we see and hold and touch and taste the bread, it is to provoke within us a remembrance of the body of Christ given for us in sacrifice upon the cross. And as we take and hold and and taste the dark crimson fruit of the vine, we are to remember His blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We are to partake And we are to remember Jesus, His atoning death, and the forgiveness which He has purchased. 
Well, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 3, the very same word is used. In fact, the very same language is used. In verse 3, the author says, but in those sacrifices, speaking of the sacrifices of the old covenant, in those sacrifices, there is a, my Bible says reminder, King James, there is a remembrance, same word, anamnesis in the Greek. And it's striking because the word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. Here, in Hebrews 10.3, and then three times in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, all of which relate to the Lord's Supper. It's a similar remembrance with two very different memories being provoked. And that struck me. It struck me how completely opposite these two commemorative rituals were. On the one hand, says the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10.3, the old covenant people of God observed the drama of these repeated sacrifices, the bull and the goat and the altar and the blood, the same offerings, the same rituals, year after year after year, and it provoked within them a remembrance That their sins were not finally forgiven. That full atonement had not been made. That reconciliation with God had had not been achieved. On the other hand, says Jesus in the Lord's Supper, the new covenant people of God, that's us, we observe the drama of the Lord's Supper, right? Not, Not... a bull and a goat and and blood, but bread and wine signifying the, the body and the blood of Christ. But it's the sacrifice. We observe the drama of the sacrifice, the same elements, the same ritual, the same words, time after time after time, month after month after month. And the memory that it provokes within us is so completely opposite of the memory that was provoked in the old covenant people of God. For us, when we see this and partake of it, it is a remembrance to us that our sins are finally forgiven. That full atonement has been made. That reconciliation with God has been achieved. That there is a new covenant between God and man, ratified by the death of Christ. In about half an hour, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And I want to stir your memory. I want to inform your memory beforehand so that when you hold the bread and when you hold the cup, what is provoked in remembrance within you is informed by this text of Scripture and will cause our souls to soar in worship, and to rejoice in the freedom of a full and final forgiveness. So let's do some work over the next half hour in order that this may have its full effect in our midst today. What are we to remember when we partake of the supper together? I want to give you two truths that I hope will come flooding into your mind in about half an hour. First, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are to remember the sufficiency of Christ's death. 
The sufficiency of the death of Christ is the focal point of verses 1 to 10, which culminates in this very triumphant statement. Look at verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. He says, Christ died once according to the will of God in the effect. We have been sanctified. Well, how does he get to that conclusion? Well, in verses 1 through 10, the author is contrasting the ineffective and repeated sacrifices of the old covenant law with the effectual, all-sufficient, once-for-all, never-repeated new covenant sacrifice of Christ. So he's holding them both up before us and he's contrasting the two, right? So it, it's not terribly difficult to track with this flow of thought, especially now that we've, we've been in the book of Hebrews. We've been walking with him through all of these chapters. His way of thinking and way of comparing and contrasting the old and the new covenant, they're familiar to us now. So we're just going to walk through this and, and give a brief mention to, to, to each verse. Look at verse 1. For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The old covenant was a temporary covenant. All of its rituals and laws and sacrifices and offerings, those were were but a shadow of the reality that was to come in the new covenant in Christ. Therefore, he says, because it was only the shadow and not the substance, only the copy and not the real thing, it could never make sinners perfect. In fact, it was never intended to. Verse 2, otherwise, would not these sacrifices have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. All right, we'll come back to verse 2 in a moment, but for right now, I just want you to see his point and how it fits in with his flow of thought. If the sacrifice had been offered, a sacrifice had been offered which was sufficient to make sinners perfect, to make sinners clean, they would have stopped offering sacrifices. What would have been the point if the sinners were made perfect? There would have been no further need for the shedding of blood, but... The sacrifices continued. The blood continued to flow upon the altar. And the author says that this was intended as a lesson for the people of God. Verses 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder. There is a remembrance. They did this in remembrance of something. Remembrance of what? Of sins. Year by year. For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as as the old covenant people of God watched this endless repetition of sacrifices, God was teaching them certain truths. If you were a part of old covenant Israel, here would have been the object lesson that you would have been getting from these yearly, even daily sacrifices that we're offering. Number one, you would have been taught that the wages of sin is death. I sin and something's got to die. Number two, blood must be shed if atonement is to be made. The only way that I can stay in the camp 
The only way I can stay in God's presence is if blood is spilled. Number three, you would have been taught that the blood of these animals that are being sacrificed, it's insufficient to make full and final atonement because they continue to be offered. In other words, the rituals and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were a 1,500-year object lesson for God's people. It was reminding them that sins remained and teaching them to look past these bulls and past these goats and past these lambs, look past those and place their hope in a Lamb of God whom God would provide in the future. This is the lesson that God was teaching His people through the sacrifices. When they did these things, they did them in remembrance of those truths. This truth that the blood of animals is not a sufficient offering for the sins of men is found throughout the Old Testament. We could turn to a number of passages in the Psalms and in the prophets, even in the historical books. But in verses 5 through 7, the author pulls one in particular. He pulls it out of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes this psalm and he applies it to Jesus. He says, therefore, when he, Christ, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. I think verses 5-7 through are beautiful, especially in light of the Lord's Supper. Sacrifice and burnt offering, bulls and goats, the blood of animals, these are insufficient to atone for sin. God does not desire them. God does not take pleasure in them. He gave them only as a temporary measure, never as the final solution to the problem of the sin of His people. But now, in the fullness of time, God prepared a body for His beloved Son. Prepared a body. Crafted it. Born of a virgin. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And He came in order to perfectly perform the will of God. Okay, Do you see what God did? What is this verse teaching us? God prepared for His people a spotless, unblemished, perfect Lamb. This is the body which God has prepared for His people. Prepared by the Father and given to the Son. And then given by the Son back to the Father as an offering for our sins. And the point of this text, the point that the author is making is that this sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, God has desired. He takes pleasure in the sacrifice of His Son. It may be impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the blood of the Son of God is entirely sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. So this morning, as you hold the bread and as you hold the cup, you are holding in your hands symbols of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, which is entirely sufficient for you. And I think you ought to take a moment and make that personal. 
I don't know what, you're, what you've done. I don't know what sins you bring to the table this morning. I don't know what failures you've trudged your way through this past week. I don't know what apathy you've tried to uncover off of your life like a wet blanket. I don't know what filth your hands have touched, your eyes have seen. I don't know what kind of defilement resides in your soul, but you do. I know what's in mine. And as you take the bread and as you take the cup this morning, listen to me, beloved. This is my body which is for you. This is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. This death is sufficient to make you clean. In verses 8 and 9, the author draws the obvious conclusion from what's just been said. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. You see what he does? He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The body which God prepared for the final atonement for the sins of his people has now been offered. So the time has come, he says, for the offering of bulls and goats and lambs and rams to cease. The substance of the good things to come has appeared. Now it's time for the shadow to disappear. So by his death, Jesus fulfilled and put an end to and set aside the old covenant law, the old covenant sacrifices, and the old covenant itself. Never to be restored. And in its place, he has established the new covenant in his blood, which we commemorate this morning in the Lord's Supper, which brings us now to verse 10. By this will, We have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. So what has been accomplished by this sufficient death of Jesus? He says we have been sanctified. Grammar matters. Verb tenses matter. And I want you to feel the joy of this verb tense. Have been sanctified. Perfect tense. Past accomplishment, ongoing effects. By the will of God, you have been sanctified by the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. It is a finished, completed work. What does that mean? Well, look back to verse 2. The author states that if the offering of the animal sacrifices of the old covenant had actually cleansed the worshipers, if they'd actually been sufficient, then they would have had a certain effect. Number one, they would have ceased because they would have worked. Number two, the worshipers would have been cleansed, meaning that number three, they wouldn't have felt so guilty all the time. They wouldn't have had consciousness of sins. All right, so he says, That would have happened if a sufficient offering had been made. That's his point in verse 2. Moving on from there, he says, the sufficient offering has been made. 
So what he said would happen has now taken place. That's what it means to be sanctified. It means this. Number one, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. He's going to make that point in verses 11 to 18. But number two, it means you are clean. And you furthermore can have a clean conscience before God. You don't have to walk out of this room this morning feeling defiled. You are clean you can feel clean this morning which brings us again to the lord's supper which is a celebration and a commemoration of the once for all perfect sufficient body and blood of christ when you take it you are to remember that by this offering you have been sanctified When you partake of the bread, right? The bread is symbolizing the body prepared by God for the Son as a pleasing sacrifice. When you you hold the bread and when you hold the cup, symbolizing the blood of Christ, which can take away sin. Blood of bulls and goats, they can't do it. Blood of Christ can. So you're holding a sufficient body and sufficient blood. You are to remember, I am clean. Jesus has removed my defilement. I'm no longer one of those outcasts that have to stay outside the camp and cannot approach the presence of God or the people of God. You are just like the man in Luke chapter 5 who was covered in leprosy and came to Jesus and fell fell on his face before him and implored him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. My life is dominated by this uncleanness that infects every part of my body. Lord, if you're willing, you have the power, you have the sufficiency to make me clean. And Luke says that Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the man. He touched him with all of his festering sores and oozing infections. He touched him. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. And when you hold the bread, and when you hold the cup, and when you are provoked to remember the sufficient sovereign power of Jesus Christ unleashed on your behalf in His death, you ought to To remember, I am clean. And you ought to hear him say in your heart, I am willing. Be clean. There is no reason in light of such sufficient grace to continue to live a life dominated and characterized and marked by defilement and guilt. He is willing. This is him stretching out his hand and saying, be clean. Second truth. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we are to remember the finality of Christ's death. Back up in verse 1, the author stated that the sacrifices continually offered under the old covenant law, they couldn't make perfect those who draw near. Well, in verses 11 to 14, the author says that, you know what, that's precisely the effect of the new covenant sacrifice of Christ. 
It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As he likes to do, he's again, one final time, he's contrasting the old covenant priesthood with the new covenant priesthood of Christ. He says, they, the old covenant priests, they stand daily offering over and over the same sacrifices which cannot take sin, take away sin. You look at them and you see a ceaseless flow of activity. They're always busy, always offering ineffective blood upon an ineffective altar. If you lived under the old covenant and you brought an offering for sin, you may do so today, but what happens when you walk outside of the tabernacle and you you go back home that night and you sin? You've got to be back at the altar the next day. Those sacrifices could not make you perfect. Not only did they not remove guilt, but they couldn't make you holy. They offered you no help whatsoever with the root problem, which is the heart. They didn't sanctify, they didn't cleanse within, they didn't write the law of God upon our heart and upon our minds, they didn't put the spirit within us that provokes us to love and good works, they were just blood. Contrast that with the priestly ministry of Jesus, he says who offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and then rose from the grave, ascended into the heavenly sanctuary and heard these words from His Father. Well done, my faithful and beloved Son. With your sacrifice I am well pleased. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which is a quotation from Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand does not mean that he's inactive. We've already seen he is active from the right hand of the Father, continually interceding on our behalf. What it means is that he offers no more sacrifices because they're not needed. Verse 14 then records the effect. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's sacrifice has done what all of the previous sacrifices could not do. It's perfected us. It has perfected those for whom Christ died. That is an astounding thought. Just let it resonate in your minds. Jesus accomplished by his death everything that was necessary for your salvation. For your perfection. Your ultimate salvation was infallibly purchased and eternally secured the moment Christ died. Beloved, this this is strong, sovereign, saving grace. Christ's death purchased your regeneration. 
your being brought from death to life was secured the moment Christ died for you. Even though 2,000 some years elapsed between the events. Christ's death infallibly secured your justification. Your verdict was already rendered not guilty the moment Christ died. Even though 2,000 years elapsed between His death and the time that you were actually justified by faith. Christ's death secured your ultimate glorification. The conclusion of that sanctifying work that's been going on progressively throughout your life. It has secured your future resurrection. None of this is in doubt anymore. We're just awaiting the outworking of what was accomplished on Calvary. How on earth, you ever ask yourself this question, how on earth can Paul say that all those whom he predestined, he did justify? And all those whom he justified, he glorified. Missed a step in there. All those whom he predestined, he called. And all those whom he called, he justified. And all those whom he justified, he glorified. How can he be so sure? How can he speak of all of these things in the past tense? Writing in 55 AD. All of those. You mean you? Yes. How can he say you have been predestined, called, justified, glorified? As if it's already happened. Because Christ died to make his predestined people perfect. He died to make you perfect. All are glorified. None are lost. Because by one offering Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfect. And there is a purifying power in dwelling upon your past perfection and your future perfection, which is as secured as if it had already happened. Verses 15 to 17. He marshals one further proof for the finality of Christ's death. This time he's going to quote again, as he did in Hebrews chapter 8, from the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31. It says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It's the climactic promise of the new covenants, the removal of guilt forevermore from the people of God, which was accomplished once and for all by the offering of Christ. He drives the point home in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is resistless logic. If the perfect sacrifice has been offered, purchasing a perfect atonement, providing perfect forgiveness for the people of God, what further need is there of bulls and goats and lambs? Absolutely none. They're worthless. In fact, they're dangerous. The point that I'm going to make in a couple of weeks when we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 10 is that to continue 
offering imperfect sacrifices according to the law is to reject the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It's to trample under foot the Son of God, to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant and to insult the Spirit of grace, which as we'll find out in a couple of weeks is not a very good idea. Because only God's Son can save us from God's wrath. I'll close this message with the an invitation and a warning. I'm going to do the warning first. I want you to take another look at verse 14. I want you to notice closely the verb tenses. They're not by accident. They're inspired, breathed out by God. My Bible reads this way. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. A more literal way to translate that verse would be like this. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Say, well, what's the difference? All the difference in the world. Has perfected, the first verb, is in the perfect tense, which means that the action, the accomplishment is complete, it's in the past, has ongoing Results has perfected, but he has perfected a certain group of people who are described by the second verb as those who are being sanctified, which I take to mean that the evidence that I am among those who have been perfected once for all at the death of Christ is that I am now being sanctified or being made holy. And if I turn that around, here's the warning. If my life does not demonstrate a characteristic of being made holy, then I can have no confidence that I'm among those whom he died to perfect. Or look at verses 16 and 17. The evidence that your sin is Forgiven and remembered no more, verse 17, is that the law is written on your heart and mind, verse 16, because it's a package deal. He writes his law upon your heart and mind, and he forgives your sins and remembers them no more. He doesn't forgive any sin of any person upon whose heart he's not inscribing his commandments and putting his spirit. In other words, the promise of perfection cannot be claimed by everybody. It is for those who are being made holy, those who are being sanctified, on whose hearts and minds the Spirit has written the law such that they are increasingly fighting against sin, hating sin, longing for righteousness, desirous of fellowship and cleansing with God. So let the Word of God warn you this morning. Do not treat glibly the death of Christ. It's not like a vending machine of forgiveness. Show up, pop a few quarters in, get out the forgiveness, and then go along your merry way. Jesus did not die merely to make you forgiven. He died to make you holy. As the author will state forcefully in a couple of chapters, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
that is what makes the promise of the new covenant so spectacular. Because the death of Christ has done what the death of those sacrifices never could. It not only removes all of the guilt of our sin, it actually breaks the power of sin from our hearts. It actually provides us with the help that we need in in becoming holy. So if the law is written on your heart this morning, I have an invitation for you. If by God's grace you have been made to feel dirty this morning, I've got good news for you. If you hate the sin that you love, and you desire to be free of the guilt that infects your heart, if, if language like that resonates with the desire that's going on within you, that's stirring within you, I want to be holy. I want Christ. I'm just so dirty. I'm so defiled. I'm such a failure. I am filthy. I've got an invitation for you from the King of Kings. I'm going to invite you to his table. And I'm going to invite you to a remembrance that is radically different than the remembrance of all of those sacrifices of years past. For 1,500 years, the old covenant people of God watched the sacrifices and they were, remembered of, they were reminded of their guilt. You are going to watch the sacrifice of Christ, the once for all sufficient death of Christ, symbolized and commemorated in the supper, and you're going to be reminded of grace. Free, sufficient, sovereign, cleansing, sanctifying, adopting, fellowshipping grace. I invite you to come to the table and to remember that Christ's death is entirely sufficient for you. It matters not from where you come, what sins you come out of this morning, how dirty your hands are, how completely defiled is the leprosy of sin on your body. It matters not. His power is not limited By the enormity of your sin. His power is limitless and his death is sufficient to save and cleanse. So I invite you to partake and to remember that Christ's death is utterly final. Never to be repeated. It's entirely sufficient. Sufficient even for you. You have been perfected for all time. You are saved and you are secure in Christ. For 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, he accomplished, purchased, did, finished your redemption. Purchased your regeneration. Ensured your sanctification. Bought your resurrection. And made secure your being brought into his presence forever inexpressible joy so come to the table of grace this morning and remember 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 that God remembers your sins 
no more. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would provoke that remembrance within our hearts. Help us. Turn this table into a means of grace, a means of confidence, a means of assurance. May may clean consciences be affected as we, by faith, come to the table of grace and partake of your body and your blood. Ask this in Jesus' name.